Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you hear that? Yes, it's coming through your speakers, but that chorus may also be singing where you live. It's the sound of male spring peepers. These tiny frogs have a natural antifreeze that aids them in winter, helping them tolerate cold temperatures. The arrival of spring and the gradual warm-up leads them to make their way from underneath leaf litter to vernal ponds and wetlands, hoping to find a mate. Today, where we live, we focus on amphibian migration. From frogs to toads to Connecticut's many salamanders, we learn how citizen science is helping biologists monitor these important species. And we talk about the factors that lead some of them to be endangered or of special concern. Now, have you seen or heard early spring amphibians who've emerged? Maybe you've taken a picture of them. Share with us on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live, or you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Again, uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, it's herpetologists who study amphibians and reptiles. Joining us now on Zoom is Stevie Kennedy-Gold, who's the collection manager of the section of amphibians and reptiles at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. Stevie, welcome to our show. Hi there, Lucy. Thank you so much. So before we learn about your collection and uh, your take on this pivotal time uh, for amphibians in spring, I've got to ask how you got interested in herpetology. That's that's a fun question for me. So I actually grew up on the West Coast where it's much warmer in Southern California. So fewer of the amphibians and a lot more of the reptiles. And I was that silly little person always running around my backyard catching little lizards, bringing them in to show my mom and freaking her out promptly. Um, But it was actually in college that I took a course on field ecology and field herpetology, and it blew my mind. We got to run around in the field, in the deserts, in vernal pools and ponds, collecting snakes and lizards and salamanders and learning all about them. And that's when I discovered I could do this as a job. I could be a herpetologist. I can run around and learn about these amazing little critters. And it kind of snowballed in the best way possible from there. And I've, I haven't looked back since. You mentioned vernal ponds and wetlands. So talk about why these are so vital for us amphibians. Yeah, that's that's that sneaky, sneaky little fact right there. So amphibians will lay their eggs, most of them, I should say, in wet areas, in pools and ponds. Um, vernal pools and ponds are not always present, though, and that's that's really important for these critters because they will emerge and go to these ponds that fill up with the spring wetter weathers so that they can lay those eggs. Um, without those vernal pools, if they dry up, you're going to not see your amphibians present at all. Um, many folks will actually comment on that being, oh, I saw I saw a tiny little puddle. It was like a footstep puddle and there was there was baby toad eggs or baby <laughs> frog eggs and I saved them. And, you know, they don't make the best of choices necessarily when they lay their eggs, but a pond is a pond and they don't recognize that some vernal pools and ponds are bigger and better than others to lay their, their eggs in. Now, if you compare that to, uh, say, a lake or uh, a river, they would face more predation if they were to put their eggs there. And so that's why these vernal ponds and other small sources are important. 
Yup, that's that's exact case. I mean, there is the threat of predation anywhere, quite frankly. Um, but in your bigger bodies of water, yes, you are more likely to have a fur or excuse me, a fish living there because it's pretty permanent compared to a vernal pool. Um, so you you swap that risk of desiccation, the drawing out of that vernal body of water for the risk of predation um, if you jump into those larger bodies of water. So you have a passion for amphibians and reptiles. So tell us how you work that in to your job at the Carnegie Natural History Museum with this impressive collection. I understand it's ranked among the top 10 largest herpetological collections in the U.S. So, so tell us about it and what are the questions you get from the public? Yeah, I love my job. It's the best job. Sorry, folks, but I'm biased. Um, so I, you can effectively think of me as a librarian of research specimens. Um, I always have to give the caveat of, yes, the critters that I look after are all dead. They are research specimens. Um, but the collection of the Carnegie is over a quarter of a million specimens, just reptiles and amphibians. And I get to help people answer questions um, regarding, you know, any, any aspect of science. What's the, you know, change in body size due to climate change or how has their diet shifted due to increased urbanization? Have their parasite loads changed? And you can look at that in these specimens because museum collections have specimens that date back, you know, sometimes hundreds of years. Um, it's a lot of fun. And every day I go into work, I of course, make sure that the collection is well-maintained, well-managed, it's usable and functional for researchers, artists, educators, whomever might come in. Um, but at the same time, I, I get to learn every day. I walk into that space, this absolutely beautiful array of jars and um, critters, and I, I learn something new. I get to, you know, look at a jar and say, I want to go to Paraguay today, or I want to go to, I don't know, Zimbabwe, and I can just find a specimen from that country and learn all about it and see how that animal has, you know, morphological adaptations that allow it to live in the deserts of, you know, um, Africa, for instance, or the rainforests of South America. It's it's a lot of fun and it's it's constantly learning. But another flip side of that is the outreach element, too, that I get to present these exquisite animals to the public um, through tabling events or through our social media accounts, the Carnegie social media accounts. And it's a lot of fun. And I know the other folks that we'll talk to later are doing a lot of citizen science work. And that's that's another great part of my job, too. And coming up where we live, we're going to learn more about some of the amphibians that live in our state here in Connecticut. Now, if you're a naturalist or you just enjoy uh, paying attention to how uh, the, the world changes around your backyard, uh, maybe you've noticed some of these early spring amphibians emerging, we'd love to hear from you. You can share a picture that you've taken maybe of a, a Connecticut frog or salamander on the move with the arrival of spring. You can tweet us at where we live or find us on Facebook. You can also join our conversation. 888-720-9677, or find us again on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. My guest on Zoom, Stevie Kennedy Gold, collection manager of the section of amphibians and reptiles at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And so when we talk about that public outreach, uh, the importance of reaching people where they are, and I know that through your work, you're also using social media to do that, the ABCs of herpetology. Tell <laughs> us about it. Yeah, so that was a, a brainchild that I had when I was actually out on a walk one day, flipping logs and such, actually looking for salamanders in the Pittsburgh area. And I came across a 
pool and I saw a green frog and, you know, I just started thinking A, B, C, oh, oh, that's an idea. Like people don't realize what's tucked underneath their feet in the leaf litter or just around them in, like you said, their backyards and what better way to help them learn than in something that we're all familiar with, which is that ABCs. Um, Also, like I said, I'm effectively a librarian of sorts and everything in my collection is alphabetized. So it kind of came together really well. Um, you asked what a common question I get is, and it's what is herpetology? That's another weird word that people just don't, you know, hear a lot of times. So it kind of all fell together of how do I explain this crazy, kooky, awesome science in a fun way, in an approachable way, in in a bite-sized way. So the, the museum has the social media accounts on things like TikTok and Instagram that were perfect avenues to give these, to give folks a little behind the scenes um, sneak peek into the collection and into herpetology in general. Tony tweeted that he's going to check his backyard compost bin. The salamanders love it. Fun to see them right here in the city. And he's talking about Hartford. Is that common to have salamanders in urban areas? That's, I love that. Go, that go, go you for looking for sallies in your, in your compost. Um, It depends on your urban area, quite frankly. So salamanders, most amphibians, really like damp, moist environments that they can hide in. And a lot of times urban areas aren't that good for that. You know, it's called a concrete jungle for a reason. But if you are near a forested area, near a place, as we've discussed, that has vernal pools that they can migrate to, Um, you might have an increased chance of seeing salamanders if you look closely. Honestly, the best way to see it is get out in nature, respect the trails, though, um, and respect the environment and the habitat that you might be moseying through to try to find these critters. Um, It's becoming less and less common, I would argue, with increased urbanization to see amphibians just because they don't do very well where humans live. But there's a there's a chance some some of them are better off than others. And later on, we're going to be hearing about uh, the climate crisis and how that impacts amphibians. But you bring up an interesting point, too, when we think about overdevelopment and how, you know, when uh, developers are building near what was once a vernal pond or a wetland, you know, even breaking up that habitat has such um, an impact on uh, these small species. Yes, that is very true. And it's really, it's very sad as well. And that's why it's important to have these greenways and um, um, migration avenues. I'm currently going branded on the proper term for it. Uh, um, Nature corridors, there we go, that allows animals to cross safely. So as I said, I grew up in Southern California and we're trying to implement more of that over freeways so that the bigger mountain lions, for instance, can cross freeways without getting hit. Now, amphibians and reptiles don't have home ranges that are that big, but they still have to cross roads that humans put in potentially to get to these vernal pools or to get to the proper breeding sites. And that that's a huge risk for them. They they don't have what the concept of a, of a building or a road is in their brains. They That's not evolutionary what they're used to. Um, so urban areas are definitely rougher for some critters than others. Now, that isn't to say that some species don't thrive. There are definitely, especially with a lot of uh, reptiles, a lot of them thrive beautifully in urban areas. And that's why there's an increased um, number of introduced species around the world. Humans are great at helping these little hitchhikers move in and um, establish different places. 
Deb shared on Facebook that she surprised this little guy when raking last weekend. And obviously, we're on the radio. We can't describe the picture or you can't see the picture. But if you go to where we live, you might be able to see what she posted. She said that the frog matched the oak leaves. And so she's wondering, was that a tree frog? <laughs> That's a great question. That's amazing. I need to familiarize myself even more with Connecticut herptofauna. I unfortunately haven't been there yet. I want to go. Um, but frogs are great at that. They are so good at camouflaging themselves. Um, yes, it might not necessarily be camouflaged to look like an oak leaf specifically, but if you spend a lot of your time on the floor around leaf litter, you want to get mottled and colorful, just like those dead decaying leaves so that a predator doesn't see you easier. If you look like a leaf, a predator that likes to eat frogs will be less likely to eat you because you don't look like a frog. Um, so great spot. That's awesome. I love hearing stories like that. Uh, earlier, I had talked about the spring peeper and how they have a, a type of, I guess, natural antifreeze uh, that helps them tolerate cold temperatures. Are there specific uh, amphibians, uh, types of frogs that, that you want to mention, Stevie? Yes. I, I love the antifreeze capability in frogs. It is the coolest thing. Um, the Probably the one of the more commonly known antifreeze frogs, for lack of better terms, is the wood frog, that people will find a frog in the middle of winter that seems frozen solid. They freak out, bring it into their house, and then within, you know, a 10 minutes plus or something of the sort, suddenly the frog's hopping around. So they thought this thing was dead. It's not. It's just a little frogsicle. It's a little popsicle frog because that's how they can survive cold temperatures. They will slow down their body. They will slow down their heart rate so that they can withstand those cold temperatures. So come spring when it warms up, they'll thaw out. You bringing it into your house is effectively thawing them um, and bringing them to life. Um, I love all sorts of reptiles and amphibians. So I could list tons of awesome frogs, um, but I don't think we have time for that. <laughs> Uh, before we let you go, Stevie, when we think about how amphibians and other species, how they impact the overall ecosystem, uh, as a, a scientist, you know, what concerns you uh, when, as you read research and see how climate is fluctuating? So I am, I kind of got my start in the field as an introduced or invasive species ecologist. So I come at it from that point of view. And folks don't often think about amphibians and reptiles, many of them as being voracious predators, but frogs especially, they are, they are hungry little buggers. If they can fit something in their mouth, they will probably eat it. Um, so if you introduce a frog or a lizard, for instance, into a city area that they can, they can thrive in, your, let's say, insect populations are going to tank. And most folks freak out, no, I don't like insects, but they're imperative. They're super important for your, your natural food web for the ecosystems, for the environment to remain like in status quo and be maintained and sustained. Um, folks really don't want to talk about snakes, but that's their apex predators in many regards too. If, if we didn't have snakes, we might be overrun by mice and rats. So these animals do have a very sneaky impact on the environment that folks don't often realize. And with climate change or with, you know, people destroying habitat, pumping chemicals into the environment. Amphibians especially are indicator species and they, their populations will flux if the environment is not doing well. And that increase, which is less likely, but more often the decrease in their population 
sizes is a is a signal that there's something wrong that you know the environment's not doing well and as a result you're going to have a weird flux in the food web you're going to have potential for bad quote unquote species to be introduced and take over which could have a snowball effect in that environment and you've been hearing Stevie Kennedy Gold here on Where We Live. She's collection manager in the section of amphibians and reptiles at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. And again, uh, she's pretty active on social media. The museum has a, a channel, and you can learn about the ABCs of herpetology. Uh, we'll be sure to, to share a link uh, where we can. Uh, Stevie, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. This was great. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we focus on Connecticut amphibians, and later we hear more about what scientists have learned about the decline of some amphibians and how climate impacts them. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a picture or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, I've done many bird shows in previous years because I've loved birds since I was a young girl. But we've been overdue in focusing on another important early spring species like amphibians. You've likely heard spring peepers singing loudly where you live, or maybe you're one of the lucky ones who has seen a salamander. Connecticut has 12 salamander species, according to state biologists, like the marbled salamander or the spotted salamander. Sandra shared with us on Facebook, for more than 30 years, I've taken my kids out for, quote, salamander rescue on the first rainy night after the ice leaves a beaver pond in Lyme. And although my kids are all adults now, we still text each other every spring when it's time to don our weather gear and meet at the crossing. And for a few years, the local police have stopped and set up flashing lights to warn approaching cars to slow down. That's really interesting, Sandra. Thank you uh, for sharing that. And we want to hear from you again. If you have been paying attention, you're hearing the spring peepers, maybe you've been out for a hike and you've got a great picture of some of these, again, early spring amphibians emerging like uh, Dawn, who shared some lovely uh, pictures with us on Twitter from the Dismal Brook Wildlife Preserve in North Granby. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, coming up, citizen scientists 
play a huge role in collecting data on these important species. We're going to learn about Frog Watch in just a few minutes. Joining us first on Zoom, Dennis Quinn, who's owner of Quinn Ecological. This is an environmental consulting business that specializes in the research and conservation of Connecticut's amphibians and reptiles. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I love the anecdote that Sandra shared, and I'm I'm assuming that this is what um, some call the big night when you have salamanders uh, on the move. Can you describe this? Yeah, this is the uh, what's referred to as the big night is the annual migrations for a lot of the uh, vernal pool breeding salamanders that we have here in the state of Connecticut, specifically the wood frog spotted salamander and uh, blue spotted and Jefferson salamanders. Uh, these are the ones that wake for the first warm spring rains that come at night and migrate into these seasonal wetlands to reproduce. Now, you manage a wonderful website, ctherpetology.com, and so people can see these pictures of these species here in our state. What led you to study amphibians and reptiles, Dennis? Oh, as far back as I can remember, this is what I did as a kid. Um, I would spend most of my days and nights out in the field with my father, looking at snakes and turtles and catching salamanders. I can remember 35 years ago going out and, uh, you know, partaking in looking at all these amphibians migrating during the early spring, spring months. So it's been a part of my life as long as I can remember. I mean, I've always said to my parents, you know, I'm going to be a herpetologist when I grow up. I was saying that since I was six years old. So this has been a lifelong passion for me. I love to hear that. Uh, when you're out and about, are there, is there a particular salamander or particular frog that you've come across that you've been really excited to see? Oh, I have to say that one of my uh, favorite species to see in Connecticut is the spadefoot toad. That's a, a very rare species here in the state. It's a state in, listed as state endangered here in Connecticut. And it's highly restricted in its distribution in the state where it occurs primarily in the extreme eastern portion of the state. So it's always a treat to run into an eastern spade foot here in the state of Connecticut. And is that a type of frog or? <laughs> yes, that's okay. it. yes, it's a type of frog. Sorry. Yeah, it's a frog. It's a burrowing species. They spend majority of their time underground and they emerge during um, warm summer rains where they come up to reproduce and feed. So they have a limited amount of activity on the surface of the ground. So they're very, they're not very seen very commonly in Connecticut. You really have to be out and searching for them and in the appropriate conditions during the appropriate times of the year. Otherwise they're burrowed underground and very elusive, cryptic. Can you talk more about the the Connecticut salamanders? I don't think I've ever seen a, a salamander in our state. I see lots of little newts when I'm out hiking, but I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the species and the ones that are of special concern. Yeah, we have a variety of species. Um, The ones that are most commonly seen, especially this time of year, would be the spotted salamanders. Those are the really large ones, you know, up to about six inches in length that you'll see crossing roadways um, on, you know, rainy spring nights. Uh, We have a variety of other species. Um, Some are threatened, like the uh, slimy salamander. And it has a highly restricted range in Connecticut, only occurs in, in the Hudson Highlands in the extreme western portion of Connecticut within core forests. Um, we also have other species which are highly restricted, like the spring salamander, which occurs in the northern reaches of Connecticut. And it prefers very cool perennial um, stream, not perennial streams, but uh, spring spread, spring fed streams that we have in the northern reaches of the state. Um, 
Probably one of the most common salamanders that people run across is the redback salamander. That's one of our fully terrestrial species that we have here in the state, and that's a forested species. Um, it does not require wetlands to reproduce. Instead, it lays its eggs in rotting bogs or in moist environments, and it's pretty neat because the female will actually stay and brood, stay with the eggs to brood them to make sure that they protect them from predators and wait till they hatch. Um, and they don't have a larval stage, which is pretty unique um, for amphibians. Most amphibians go through a larval period in an aquatic, in an aquatic environment where they have external gills. The uh, redback salamander and also the, the slimy salamander do not do that. They have what's referred to as direct development and everything happens within the egg itself. So they're not reliant on wetlands. So that's a very interesting and very common species that we have here in the state. Um, some of our special concern species or listed species, I mentioned two already, the slimy salamander and spring salamander, but the other invistimid salamanders, a blue-spotted salamander, Jefferson salamander, both of those species are listed as special concern, and those, again, are two more that you can see migrating during the early springs this time of year. And if you want to see pictures of these salamanders that, that Dennis mentioned, I believe you've got pictures of those on ctherpetology.com. You're hearing Dennis Quinn, owner of Quinn Ecological and Environmental Consulting Business that specializes in the research and conservation of Connecticut's amphibians and reptiles. Uh, when we think about um, how habitat uh, can become fragmented because of uh, development, I'm wondering if you can talk about just what you have noticed in your years, uh, what the research has also shown about the species that are in decline and why? Yeah, it's um, really unfortunate because many of our species across the state are in decline. And the primary reason for that decline is the fragmentation of habitat resulting from, you know, residential developments, roadways, um, just urbanization in general. Um, we're seeing, you know, as I said, declines across the state. Um, but I'm sorry, my dogs were barking in the background. I got oh, distracted. It's, it's okay. <laughs> we're talking about the decline that you have uh, noticed and, again, what biologists have noticed in our state. Yeah. Um, populations, you know, populations of salamanders are in decline. And, and specifically with such a species like the spotted salamander, those require multiple habitats. Uh, they require wetlands to breed in. Those specific wetlands are vernal pools that were talked about earlier, but also the forested habitat surrounding those pools. And I think that we need to better understand the connection between those two habitats. And what's occurring now is there's a lot of fragmentation. So what's happening is that roadways are being built between vernal pools and the upland forests that these salamanders rely on. Um, it's important to understand that spotted salamanders are coming into these wetlands for a very short period of time, only a, a you know period of one or two weeks during the early spring to reproduce and reproduce and lay their eggs. The rest of their time is spent in the surrounding forested habitats. And these salamanders can move quite a great distance from the vernal pool up to, you know, 1,500 plus feet. So that's a long distance. And when we start to fragment these habitats, we degrade the habitat, we um, in many ways cause direct impacts for salamanders crossing roads, risking them getting hit by vehicles, but also secondary impacts such as salt running off roadways, um, drying out habitats, 
um, all sorts of, of environmental factors which decrease the suitability of the vernal pools for reproduction and the upland forested habitats for survival of these salamanders, which require very cool, moist environments to survive. So what we really need to be doing better in Connecticut is planning. Um, we lack in our planning, and a lot of our planning occurs within the 169 towns that we have in Connecticut at local, um, you know, uh, wetlands commissions and planning and zoning commissions, where we need to have more um, development occurring that is informed by in the field data to prevent these roadways from being um, it, uh, built in areas that are going to impact these migratory corridors for salamanders. And until we until we start doing that, we're going to continue to see these declines. We need to be a little more, um, a, well, not a little, a lot more uh, aware of our impacts on the environment. Uh, I wanted to read a tweet that someone shared. Marcus uh, wrote, while hiking, I kept waiting for a fairly large flock of birds to appear, only to discover a pond filled with frogs. It's the perfect transition for our next guest uh, on the show. Uh, joining us uh, again on Zoom, Jim Knox, who's curator of education for Connecticut Beardsley Zoo, one of the partners of Frog Watch, which is a national citizen science project. Jim, welcome to the show. Lucy, thank you for having us. So uh, I'm curious when uh, Marcus shared that, uh, you know, how uh, people first observe and uh, understand that, you know, there's amphibians that are on the move this time of year. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how citizen scientists are helping with this data collection around our state. Well, <clears throat> this is a great program, and we thank you for the opportunity to share it. It's known as Frog Watch USA. And Frog Watch USA is a national program, as you mentioned, that has chapters, hundreds and hundreds of chapters throughout the country. And we have um, a, a very vibrant chapter here in Connecticut that was started by Jim Search at the Yale Peabody Museum back in 2013. Connecticut's Beardsley Zoo jumped into this, this, prog this project in 2015. And our colleagues uh, at the Maritime Aquarium, led by Bridget Cervero, uh, joined us in 2016. And this, this triad, this this combination of, of talent and, and dedication has led to this really vibrant citizen science opportunities where, where kids, grandparents, parents can get out in the community and listen for fraud calls and actually help scientists with data collection. So tell us more about um, the watchers and listeners are, who are helping scientists and you know, what, what are they asked to observe and then how do they input that information to help uh, scientists? That, that's a great question. So the program, as you know, is named Frog Watch, but it's really, in, in, at its heart, a bioacoustic program. So we're listening for frog calls because with, with our human eyes not accustomed to the dark, which is when these frogs are calling after sunset, we really need to listen to find the, the, the different individual frogs and in the species. And so what we do is we have training orientation workshops in the spring. We just concluded our, our big training here um, this past week where we were able to virtually train folks in listening and identifying these different frog calls. Now we have 11 frog species here in Connecticut. And I say frogs and toads, we're putting them together in the frog basket because all toads are frogs. <laughs> Ultimately, they're all part of the same group. We have 11 of these species in Connecticut. And by, by training our volunteers in how to identify them, uh, they, they can, we have great fidelity of data. We have great scientific data that is accurate, that goes into this national database. And, and ultimately, the really amazing thing about this program is that you can have a seven-year-old capture data and then 
essentially teach a scientist as to the, the loca locality of a species, the, the diversity of a particular wetland, and the abundance of these species. For our listeners who want to learn more about Frog Watch, what's the easiest way online? Oh, uh, easiest way online. Well, for our local our local um, listeners, uh, there, there are multiple resources, but ultimately you are not far from a Frog Watch USA chapter here in Connecticut. That's a great thing. From our colleagues up at the Maritime Aquarium up to the north, uh, to our colleagues at the Peabody Museum here at Connecticut's Beardsley Zoo, and our colleagues at the Maritime Aquarium, we've blanketed that. So if you're in Connecticut, you're near a Frog Watch chapter, you can go onto our respective websites. The zoo's website is beardsleyzoo.org. But I, I got to tip my hat to my colleague, Jim Search at the Yale Peabody Museum. He, he kicked it all off for us. So please reach out to Jim to the Peabody Museum. We'll make sure that we also share that on our social media. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. If you're one of the residents who's contributed to this citizen science project known as Frog Watch, or if you want to share some observations that you've noticed where you live, again, our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we're going to have some fun now. I believe, Jim, you have shared uh, some sounds of the different frogs in our state. So let's let's play one right now. <laughs> All right, Jim. So if, if our listeners hear that near uh, where they live, what are they hearing exactly? Okay. If they're hearing that sound, which, which a lot of my friends say sounds like a Star Wars, like a lightsaber, <laughs> kind of sounds like a lightsaber, that is the call of the American bullfrog. And the, the bullfrog is the, the great white shark of our, of our Connecticut wetlands, right? They are voracious predators. And although it's welcoming to see any amphibian, these guys gobble up their smaller neighbors. So um, when, when uh, Dennis and, Kate and, um, and Stevie were talking about habitat degradation and, and different species moving in, the bullfrogs, when the habitat is compromised, they move in. Uh, so we, we like to see them, but we're cautious when we hear them, too. Dennis, I wanted you to pipe in. Uh, Dennis Quinn, again, uh, when we think about um, fluctuations uh, with climate and how that changes temperature and water, are there particular frog species that do better in, in warmer water, like the bullfrog? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a, you know, that's a complex question. Um, you know, climate change is fairly new. Um, you know, it's been around for a while, but it's fairly new in the sense that we're just now starting to... Um, see some of the uh, impacts it's having on our local species and you know there are predictive models which would say that you know some of our amphibian species will thrive uh, with the changing climate but on the flip side of that there's quite a few that are going to decline and decline quite rapidly uh, with the changing climate that is coming so you know time will tell exactly how climate change is going to impact um, the complex complexities of the amphibians in their distribution here in the state of Connecticut, but some will do okay and some will not fear that well as a result of climate change. Mm. Uh, Jim Knox, uh, I was thinking back to some of the recent droughts that uh, Connecticut was under uh, the last few summers and uh, what do we know in terms of the frog watch data and any declines that have been seen? That's a great question, Lucy. I can tell you that <clears throat> What we're seeing across the board from 2016 to 2021, which is the, the time span for our triad collaboration, we're seeing, um, we're seeing fairly steady numbers with our frog, both our diversity and our, our populations, at, at least acoustically, with, with our, these 11 species. We are seeing um, 
more data points and that is really testimony to the fact that we have so many folks who are really engaged in this and, and are really excited about this. Um, so I'm, I'm very happy to say that that this chapter is the number one leading the nation, uh, this Peabody Beardsley Maritime chapter is leading the nation in data reporting. And that's absolutely essential. The more data you have, the more informed uh, your conservation decisions can be. Uh, now we played the sound of a bullfrog. Let's play another one uh, for our listeners. There's a natural beat there, Jim. Tell us about it. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. So that that sort of uh, banjo string or broken <laughs> banjo string, that's the sound of the green frog, and that that's a sound that is very common in Connecticut wetlands. And so if you hear that, you are probably within about five feet of a green frog. So uh, obviously, are they green? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. So green frogs are generally green, but okay. there's actually a bluish green or almost a teal colored mutation, which is pretty uncommon here in Connecticut. But I've actually seen it. My son and I found one on our property one day, and it was a holy cow moment. And, <laughs> and by the way, I want to thank... Um, musicofnature.com for these wonderful recordings. They really help to identify these frogs. Oh, thank you for that, uh, Jim Knox. Uh, uh, and I wanted to play uh, one more for our listeners uh, as they're out and about uh, this uh, spring and summer. So what's that, Jim? Okay, so that one that some of my friends can imitate quite well um, and I cannot, it is the American toad. So if you hear that, that wonderful trill, that, that, that sort of ascending and descending trill, that is the call of the American toad. Very nice. And we've been talking about uh, species that are on the decline. I thought I read that there was actually a new species that was found, a new frog species in our state in, in recent years. Uh, Dennis Quinn, can you tell us about that one? Yeah, absolutely. That work was uh, spearheaded by Dr. Jeremy Feinberg, um, and it was it, it's the Atlantic Coast leopard frog. It's a newly discovered species that occurs here in Connecticut and throughout the Mid-Atlantic region, coastally in the eastern United States. Um, and it's it, it's a really interesting species. It, it, it's very similar in appearance to the northern leopard frog, um, but it has a different call. Um, and their breeding seasons are a little bit separated from each other here in Connecticut. So they breed the Atlantic Coast leopard frog breeds a little bit earlier than the north the northern leopard frog here in the state. Um, it's currently a species which is being considered for a listing as endangered. Um, it's not listed yet, but it certainly will be. It only occurs or is known to occur in Connecticut at two sites, um, and there have through the historic data, which this is also where you know. Um, museum collections become very important for scientists. Um, in reviewing the museum collections across the country for this species, um, we have seen that there's been a few populations in Connecticut where this species used to occur, which no longer, which they no longer occur in. Um, so they're extant in two populations here in the state, and it is a newly described species about four or five years ago now. Well, before uh, we end, uh, Jim Knox, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Frog Watch uh, for our listeners, this National Citizen Science Project. I know my kids get excited when we're uh, out and about and they see uh, little creatures. I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to handling them, what, what do you advise? Okay, the same advice my colleague Jen Farrell says every day to the kids. 
Um, we want to look, but don't touch. We've got these great phones nowadays. We've got great digital photography capability. So take those photos, get those audio recordings, share it with us here at the zoo, the museum, the, the aquarium. We'd love to hear it um, and enjoy that time together. We don't necessarily have to pick them up because that can, that can uh, strip them of their protective slime. Mm, that's good to know. Thank you, Jim, for your time today and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. That's Jim Knox, Curator of Education for the Beardsley Zoo in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Dennis Quinn is with us, owner of Quinn Ecological. And and coming up after the break, amphibians are considered, quote, canaries in the coal mine, warning of environmental changes. We're going to talk more about the climate's impact on them. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Now, we've been focused on amphibians this hour with the warmer temperatures. They're waking up. They're making their ways to vernal ponds and wetlands. We wanted to learn more about how climate impacts the many species that live in our state. Joining us now on Zoom, Mark Urban, the Arden Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut. Mark, welcome to our show. Hello, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me on your program and for devoting your program to such a great subject of amphibians. Now, your work highlights the, the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. So when we talk about amphibians, tell us more. Yeah, so um, uh, like many of your guests, uh, I grew up uh, catching frogs and, and salamanders and uh, trying to understand their lives. And, uh, you know, as time has gone on and I've gotten a the great chance to study these species, I'm, I'm seeing how they're changing in response to uh, these warmer conditions that we're seeing all across the world and, and in our state. And so, and, you know, we think of amphibians, um, you know, they, they are very sensitive creatures. And so they're, they're already facing many threats from um, habitat degradation, as, as uh, Jim and Dennis have mentioned. Uh, but now we have this, this, this new threat of climate change. And we think that amphibians are probably going to be uh, very sensitive to these climatic changes, uh, in part because of, of their lifestyle. So, you know, I can give you three reasons why they're sensitive. To, the first of which being that, you know, they're not just sensitive to temperature, but also to precipitation. Uh, many of them live largely aquatic lives, and, and or at least a part of their life is spent in the water. And even those that are terrestrial are really tied to, to water. They need to remain moist uh, for long periods of time. And if they die dry out, they, they don't do too well. Um, and, you know, we, we could see this during the migration right now in that as soon as you have that first warm rain of the season, you see all these amphibians uh, coming out to, to move to a, a nearby pond and to breed and uh, to sing in all those lakes, ponds and, and ditches around our houses. So that's one reason. But another reason is that they tend to be very sensitive to disease. And so, you know, these diseases that they face are often tied to, to the climate. And uh, you know, we're seeing, in, unfortunately, in many parts of the world, an increase in some of these diseases as the climate changes. And um, you know, we, we expect that to increase with climate change. Uh, here so, in our you know, state, just, oh, I'm sorry, Marco, when you talk about disease. I would say you, yeah. you could just think of um, the um, uh, rise in incidence of, of ticks and, and, mm -hmm. and Lyme being facilitated by, by warmer conditions. So, so these organisms also face those sorts of same conditions of disease. A fungal disease in our state that impacting amphibians? 
Uh, so we do have fungal disease. Um, uh, luckily for us, uh, it's more endemic. Um, there are parts of South America, for example, where uh, it is not. And so, so those amphibians are facing some declines um, from so-called chytrid. Uh, but that's not as big a problem, but, but we do see threats from other diseases that seem to be increasing, for example, in warmer summers. So tell us how you've had to adjust your field work. We were talking about the importance of citizen science uh, to help collect data, but I'm wondering if you can talk more about the challenges that you've seen. Yeah, so one of the things that we need to do is get out there and uh, be ready to study these organisms as they emerge from the winter. And, uh, you know, it used to be that our field seasons would would start in, you know, late March and in April even. And what we're seeing is that as, uh, you know, conditions warm up, we're, we're actually uh, seeing these migrations happening earlier in, in many cases and having to adjust our field seasons and start earlier and earlier. And, you know, that, that goes for field work that I do in Connecticut, but in other places too, like Alaska, we're having to come in weeks and weeks earlier than we used to. And these changes are happening really quickly for us. And so we're really having to adjust on the fly. We heard Dennis Quinn earlier talk about some of the salamanders in our state that are endangered or of special concern. And so when we hear that, uh, Mark, uh, you know, what does data show in terms of how, you know, some of these, uh, could they become extinct? So one of the things that that we know about amphibians worldwide is is actually that they are uh, the most threatened group of animal in the world. most of these threats come right now from loss of habitat or invasive species or diseases. Um, but, you know, climate change is, is now um, starting to, to accelerate and starting to, to have effects on them. And, you know, unfortunately, because these are species that are already threatened and often have small population sizes, we're sort of hitting them while they're, while they're down. And, and climate change interacts with all those other threats as well. Um, so, so we do... Um, Unfortunately, we, we um, are worried about the amphibians. Um, in our state, uh, as uh, Jim suggested, uh, so far we see relatively stable populations, except in places where uh, we see degradation of habitat, and that's having the major effect rather than climate change. But in the future, we expect climate change to have more and more of an influence, and we expect there to be winners and, and losers among those amphibians. Again, you're hearing on Zoom with us Mark Urban, the Arden Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut. I wanted to fit in a quick call. June's calling in from Burlington. June, what did you want to share with us? We just have a couple of minutes. June, can you hear us? Yes. Um, I thought you were going to record what I had had called in. Um, For the last nine or ten years, I have had um, a gray tree frog come and live under the uh, my window box on the railing of my deck and I have tracked it to it arrives between May 14th and 16th except last year it arrived a week early and I wondered if that was any indication um, of a change in the climate. Um, I also have a um, above ground pool near that deck and a few weeks later, they the frog hosts a party there. I can hear the frogs' come, calls coming in from the woods nearby, and uh, they have a grand party there. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you, June, for describing that. Uh, Mark, did you want to respond to our listener, June, about her uh, observations year to year? 
Hi, Jane. Yeah, uh, thank you for the observation. And, and we want to incorporate those observations and, and get a whole bunch of them to, to be able to know, you know, over long periods of time if, if we're seeing those changes and they're coming earlier. Um, you know, tree frogs are great because they they sing in our property and and sometime in early to, to mid-summer, they'll, they'll come and, and find very small bodies of water and, and breed in them. And uh, we've got a research site where they come in every every year and, and breed in our our little tanks and buckets that we use. And, um, you know, they they just sit there and call all day. Um, but yeah, we can't, it's hard to use one instance to know if it's, it's, it's a big, you know, population level change in response to climate, but uh, we do want to amass those observations and uh, understand those changes as, as we move forward in this warmer world. You know, often we want to know what we can do as we're facing this biodiversity crisis. Uh, Mark, what can you, what can you leave our listeners with today as they're learning about all of these amazing species in our backyards? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the one thing that we know is that, um, you know, as the climate warms, it uh, actually accelerates the extinction risk. So it's not just a, uh, a gradual increase in extinction. We actually see that incre increase uh, of extinction uh, more and more with, with warmer climates. So as much as we can keep the climate from warming, every 0.1 degrees is really, really important for these species that, you know, can't just take off their sweater or turn on the air conditioner. Mm. And, and this is a positive note, right? So this means that we can do something. We can keep the climate from warming. Uh, we can do things like switch to renewables. You, you can go right now into your electrical supply and, and pick 100% renewables. Uh, you know, you can reduce your fuel consumption. And the other thing to do for, for these species is just protect their habitat. We don't want to kick them all they're down. We want to, you know, give them the best chance to deal with climate change. And, and so protecting habitat on your property, leaving it intact. Um, don't just fill in that, that, that wet area in your property, um, that might be a place where amphibians might be able to breed. Um, and one thing I want to mention is salamander larvae love to eat mosquitoes. So definitely you want to support these, these salamanders. And on a, on a larger school, I, I think in, in the state of Connecticut, we can think about forming corridors of habitat so that these species can naturally track the climate as it moves north. Uh, you know, give them the chance to, to adapt and move and, and, and track those, those climates that they prefer so that you know, when, when we do get climate change under control and, and climates return back to normal, hopefully in, in, in some period of time, that they'll come back and, and be able to move back down into our state. And we'll have to leave it there. Mark Urban, Arden Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UConn. Thank you for your time. Also here with us, Dennis Quinn, owner of Quinn Ecological. He's one of the authors of Conservation of Amphibians and Reptiles in Connecticut, published by the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Check out that book. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Have a great weekend.